Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to LSE this evening. My name is Paul Kelly. I'm pro-director for teaching and learning here at the LSE and a professor of political theory. And I'd like to welcome you to LSE to this LSE Peking University Lecture. I'd particularly like to extend a warm welcome to our friends and colleagues from Peking University who are here. Tonight's lecture will be delivered in Chinese and there will be translation. We had hoped to, to provide simultaneous translation. Unfortunately, that's fallen flat at the last minute. So my apologies to our distinguished guest and to other guests here this evening that we weren't able to provide that. But we will have um, periodic breaks in the presentation for our translators to provide a translation for you. Now, just for the for the record, when we come to the question and answer session at the end of the lecture, um, I'm happy to invite questions in Chinese to our speaker, but if you would also wait for the translators to reverse that into English for the benefit of the rest of the audience. But this will be a bilingual event, okay? Please note, that this event will be recorded. There will be video and audio, and we expect a podcast of the event to be made available online in due course. So can I ask everyone to turn off their mobile phones or put them onto silent? Um, but for those of you who are inclined to tweet, you might be interested to know that the hashtag, for those of you for whom this sort of thing matters, is Hash LSEPKU. Peking University is one of LSE's five international institutional partners from across the world. LSE values its relationship with PKU very highly. We see Peking University as an outstanding partner because of its growing intellectual distinction, research leadership, and the quality of its educational programs. There's been a strong student interest in LSE's programs with PKU, particularly our double degree programs, and the LSE Peking University summer program, as well as PhD mobility and exchange that exists between various departments at Peking University and the LSE. We would like to see that relationship grow stronger to the benefit of students and faculty and to the long-term good of both of our universities. So, it gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. Professor Leo Wei is Executive Vice President of Peking University in charge of Humanities and Social Sciences, Continuing Education, Sports and Technology Transfer at the University. He holds three degrees in economics from Peking University, where he has previously served as Dean of, School, of the School of Economics, Assistant President and Vice President, and amongst his many claims to fame, Professor Liu is the Chief Editor 
of the academic journal Economic Science and vice chair of both the Steering Committee for Economics Teaching and the Expert Committee on Discipline Development and Speciality Setup of the Ministry of Education in China. Professor Liu's research interests include economic theories of socialism in political economics, economic transition theories in inst institutional economics, industrial structure evolution in development economics, and enterprise ownership. Professor Liu will speak for around 25 to 30 minutes on this, on the topic of innovation transforming China's economic development. And as I've said, he will welcome questions and your insights following that. So, without further ado, please join with me in giving Professor Liu a warm welcome to LSE this evening. Dear teachers and students, good evening everybody. I'm really honored to be here and have the opportunity to talk about the issues on China's economy. So the key topic of my talk today is on innovation as the solution to China's economic reform. In the talk, I hope to address why such reform and transition is so essential to China's economic development. And I would like to talk about this issue from four areas. Firstly, what is the current status of China's economy? What kind of opportunities are there for China? Secondly, what are the changes to the condition for China's economic development and the challenges these changes bring? Thirdly, what are the current imbalance issues of China's economy and the reasons for such imbalance? And finally, I would like to address why the solution lies in innovation and in reform. So the first topic I'm going to talk about is the current economic standard of China's economy and the new objectives for its development. After 30 years of reform and opening up, China's economy is standing at a new starting point. And this is showed in three different ways. First, in terms of gross domestic product, China had achieved an average annual growth of about 9.8% by the end of 2012, reaching 50.1 trillion yuan, or more than 8 trillion US dollars. That's about 24 times as much as that in 1978, which is the beginning year of reform and opening up. This 9.8% growth rate has lasted continuously for the past 34 years. China's GDP share accounted for from slightly more than 1% at the beginning of the reform to about 10.4% of the world GDP in 2012, growing from number 10 in 1978 to number 2 in the world in 2010, when China surpassed Japan. So as one can see, this growth rate from just 1% to more than now 10.4% can be seen extremely fast-paced. In terms of the per capita GDP, China had achieved an average annual growth of about 8.7% by the end of 2012, increasing from about 17 times that of 1978 at constant prices, amounting to more than 38,000 RMB or 5,800 US dollars equivalent. According to the World Bank, China moved up in 1998 to a lower middle income country from a low income country. 
and since 2010, China has achieved the breakthrough of growing from a lower middle income country to an upper middle income country. Hence, since 2010, according to the latest standard issued by the World Bank, in terms of the per capita GDP, China has reached the level of an upper middle income country. The final area is in revolution of economic structure. In terms of the agricultural modernization, the proportion of China's agricultural labor force decreased from 70.5% in 1978 to 36% in 2012, moving from a poor country to an upper-middle-income country. In terms of industrialization, China has increased to more than 60% from its initial stage in 1978, comparing to most modern standardized industrial countries. In terms of urbanization, China has gone from less than 20% in 1978 up to around 50.6% in 2012. And although we have not reached as high as percentage as in developed countries, we have already entered into accessory stage, which is between 30% and 70%. In terms of third industry, particularly inf information industry, the modern service industry, aided by modern information technology, has grown remarkably, and the output value of the ternary industry has increased to 43.3% in 2001 from 23.9% in 1978, with the proportion of its working force going from 12.2% up to 34.6%. Although there is still a big distance from the developed countries, the rate of development is rapid over the past 30 years. Standing at the new starting point, China has new goals for its economic development. This is shown in three areas. First, goals of doubling economy and sustainable growth. If the annual growth rate of Chinese economy can be maintained at around 7.0% from 2010 to 2020, China's GDP in 2012 will double that of 2010, amounting to 90 trillion RMB or about 15 trillion US dollars, close to the GDP of the United States in 2011. In theory, the potential growth rate of China's economy from 2010 to 2020 may well be fixed between 7% and 8% annually. In reality, the growth rate for 2011 was 9.2%, for 2012 was 7.8%, and for the first half of 2013 was 7.6%. And the expected annual growth rate for 2013 is above 7.5%. That is to say, in the past three years, the actual growth rate of Chinese economy was higher than the average growth rate aimed at achieving the goals of doubling economy by 2012. Therefore, it is absolutely likely that we will achieve an average annual growth rate of more than 7% in the next seven years. Second, increasing per capita GDP and achieving high income. If China's economy keeps growing at the annual rate of over 7.2% and 
and at the same time, the population rate remains at lower than 0.5%. In the past years, it was at 0.3%. Then, by 2020, China's per capita GDP will double that of 2010, amounting more than 60,000 RMB at a constant price of 2010, or about 12,500 US dollars at the exchange rate, which exceeds the minimum amount for modern high-income countries set by the World Bank in 2012. According to the World Bank statistics, at the end of 2012, 70 countries have achieved that minimum amount, which is 12,476 US dollars. If the goal of China per capita GDP doubling that of 2010 by 2012 is achieved, it means that China will take only 10 years to advance from an upper-middle-income country to a high-income country. At the moment, there were 70 countries reached that high-income level, and on average, it took them 12 years and 4 months to reach that level. Therefore, if China achieves its goal, it will be able to do it within 10 years. Finally, we are aiming at economic structure changes. The first concerns agricultural modernization. The proportion of agricultural labor will drop from the current 36% to about 15% by 2020. Given the fact that the current proportion of agricultural labor falls by 2-3% annually on average, it is possible to achieve this goal. The next is focused on reaching the starting point of high-income countries in terms of urbanization increasing from the current 53% up to around 70%. With the average annual growth rate of 2%, it is possible to reach this goal as well. Finally, in terms of industrialization, China has currently achieved two-thirds of industrialization. And basically, we want to realize industrialization by 2020. And the above timeline has been emphasized a lot in the recent 17th and 18th Congress conference. Doubling the GDP, doubling the GDP per capita, by 2020, China will realize the goal of a wealth society in all-round way. Advancing from upper-middle-income stage to high-income stage, not only in terms of per capita GDP, but also in terms of economic quality, namely economic structure. By the middle of this century, we will realize modernization from the perspectives from both per capita GDP and economic structure and catching up with the developed countries. I've now talked about the first issue and then let's move to the second issue. What are the new changes in China's economic conditions? The new changes mainly concentrate in two areas, the changes in the supply side and the changes in the demand side. Take the changes in the supply side. Once economic development involves into up-middle-income stage, any significant expansion of production capacity will inevitably come along at increasing expenses to the national economy. These include price hikes in land, labor, energy, raw materials, and environment costs. In other words, significant cost rise concerning various production factors on the supply side will lead to fundamental changes to core competitiveness and the main advantages of the national economy as opposed to the past. In the past, China relied primarily on low-fact costs to ensure competitive advantages in the international market, while resorting mainly in excess expansion of fact input to stimulate and sustain 
turbo speed economic growth, as we used to say, take economic construction as the central work. Clearly, continuous of such economic growth mode is difficult to maintain due to the increase of costs and lack of competitiveness. Hence, calling for its transformation to a growth model that places more reliance on enhanced efficiencies, including productivity productivities of individual and total production factors to fuel and improve economic growth. It is not to say that in the past 34 years, the contribution of total production factors did not play a role. And it is particularly true for China during the post-mid-1990s period, when factor efficiencies have gradually gained weight in their contribution to economic growth as evidenced by steady increase of proportion contribution of total production factors to economic growth over consecutive years. And we have some data here. From the year's average of over 20% during 1995 to 1997, to above 28.5 from 1997 to 2002, and ultimately up to 38.4% for the period of 2002 to 2007. So as we can see, it indeed contributes to the economic growth. So what the problem is that efficiency improvement in China's economic growth lags far behind the pace of economic growth. This is particularly true in terms of labor productivity and agricultural productivity. We have mentioned that overall process of China's industrialization has come a long way to have consumed two-thirds of what defines a contemporary country as industrialized. However, labor productivity in China's agriculture industry has reached only 14.7% of the level categorized as a standard industrialized country, while the comparable figure of the manufacturing sector has reached only 46.2%. Only in its tariff sector, in its level of the labor productivity on bar with that of standard industrialized country on average. All these indicate that the level of China labor productivity falls out of line with the progress of industrialization and that China's economic growth relies mainly on quantitative expansion of factor input. And this is a big problem. In addition to the change of supply, once you enter the middle-high income stage, another major change is in terms of the condition of demand. Prior to that, in the low-income stage, demand is high. One can even say the whole economy is in shortage. Therefore, the entrepreneurs in that period are very happy because they don't have to consider sales. And the government intervened, focused on how to deal with shortage. But once at the middle-high income stage, the demand becomes more or there's a problem of lack of demand, so it's very different from before, no matter for entrepreneurs or for government managers, no matter for macro or micro level intervene, they all face new challenges. The lack of demand is mainly referring to two areas. One is the investment demand and the other is the consumption demand. The reason for the lack of investment demand in middle high income economy for China, the key issue is not about lack of savings. If the economy is growing and the saving is increasing, in theory, one should have more demand in investing. The problem for the enterprise is that they lack of the ability to innovate and leading to the space for industry-enhanced productivity narrows. 
So even if they have the money to invest and the savings in the bank increases, they can't find efficient and new opportunities to invest in the market. If they expand the investment based on the same product structure and the technology structure, they must then face the problem of production overcapacities. This problem for China, particularly in terms of industrial products, has been moving from industrial consumption product to industrial raw materials. The overcapacity level is extremely worrying. And the fundamental reason is that due to lack of industrial structure in hands, and the reason for that is because of lack of innovation. Therefore, even if the economy is growing, even if the money in the bank increases, but that enterprises actually face the danger of lack of investment demand in the long term. From the statistical data, the increased rate on China's capital investment is not low. From 2008 to 2011, it's averaged at above 20%. So why are we still concerned about the lack of investment demand? The key is to look at who is investing. At the moment, it is the Chinese government that is investing. Government's ability to invest is either efficient nor sustainable. It would be difficult for the governmental investment to achieve competitive efficiency if unrestrained by market forces. Fiscal deficit is able to act to restrain on the central government's investment. Since 2009, when China's deficit amount amounted to 2.8 of GDP, that is already close to the 3% warning figure recommended by the European Union. Local government debt risks are causing concerns from all circles of Chinese society, while 2011 audit report sized up the total debt in local government financing vehicles to be in the neighborhood of 11 trillion yuan. This is a massive figure. So the problem of China's investment demand is that the main investment body is not the enterprise in the market, but the Chinese government. Hence, the sustainability is worrying. Secondly is the inefficient total demand of consumption. According to statistical data, the average increase rate of total product consumption is actually not low. It's at 14% annually. So why are we still worry? The problem is the imbalance of national income distribution, and it's a problem difficult to be resolved in the short term. National income is distributed among the government, the business, and the households in the respective form of taxes, capital surplus, and household income in the same order. Over the long term in the recent decades, tax revenues in China has registered fast average annual growth, more than 18% over the past 30 years, followed by capital surplus, and then the household income has seen the most smallest growth, which is lower than the long-term GDP growth, so much so that the ratio of household income to GDP has continued to decline. On the other hand, the gap exists among household income in nowadays China continue to grow. According to the estimations by the China National Bureau of Statistics published in January 2013, over the 10 years, China's Gini coefficient has stayed above the conventional warning line. Although the coefficient was dropped by a bit after 2008, it is still above the warning line. Widening disparity among household income will undoubtedly reduce the societal prosperity to consume and then enhance the relative deficiency on consumer demand.
The third issue I'm going to talk about is the new characteristics of the imbalance in China's economic growth. The emerged problem has not appeared previously, which is the massive inflation forces coexisting with the slack demand for economic growth both present risks of economic downturn. The downward trend of economic growth has become apparent as evident by the declining growth rate for seven consecutive quarters from 2011 to 2012, longer than the span of five consecutive quarters when the economic growth rate saw continuous decline in the wake of world financial crisis in 2008. The main reason, as mentioned previously, is the lack of efficient investment opportunity as well as the decline of the consumption. On the issue of inflation, according to statistic data, it is not high. It remained below 3% since 2012. So why are we concerned? The reason is the cause of such inflation. Huge amount of money were injected into economic economy to stimulate economic growth. And the amount of currency grew further to above 92 trillion by the end of June 2013, meaning that the ratio of monetary stock to GDP has gone far beyond the normal benchmark. As previously mentioned, efficiency enhance, enhancement lagging behind the rising cost has induced severe cost push inflation, and this is something we have not experienced before. Hence, the inflation pressure are building up. So that was the third issue. Now I'm moving to the fourth issue, the new path of Chinese economic growth. Based on the previous analysis, China's economic imbalance and long-term sustainability is cannot be resolved by a policy adjustment, but it should be resolved in a deep-seated structure change in the economic system. In order to achieve such structure change and bring them under the effective control, the only way is to introduce innovation. In essence, the change to the developmental model entails structure and strategic adjustment to basic formation of economic system, such as industry structures, market structures, te technological structures, investment and consumption structures, the structures of national income distribution, import and export structure, urban and rural structure, etc. The ultimate force that drives change in the way economic development is accomplished come from innovation initiatives. Efficiency enhance is a function of innovations, while structural evolution and upgrade are in turn a function of efficiency enhancement. All the innovative initiatives are engendered from technology, technological innovation in the first place, which in turn critically depends on human capital. This is why in mainland China, there has been so much attention and so much hope on the economic structure reform which has been proposed in the 18th Congress meeting. The proposal on economic structure reform in the 18th Congress meeting included 15 aspects raised 60 detailed tasks for reform. The, object, the objective is to completely and systematically introduce structural innovation and structural reform and to enhance China's ability to innovate, which will lead to fundamental changes to China's development model. Through such development model, to realize the strategic adjustment to economic structure and therefore in 
ensure China's sustainable economic growth and break through the middle income trap. Above is the main content of today's talk, and now I welcome any questions and for discussion. This. Thank you very much, Professor Liu. Um, can I invite questions from the floor? Please wait until a microphone comes to you, because we are recording this, so it's helpful, and speak into the microphone. If you could also identify yourselves, and if you ask the question in Chinese, please wait for the translators to translate for everybody else. So, um, gentleman in the green jacket, and then the gentleman next to him to start. I'll take the two questions together. Hello, um, Professor Liu. My, my name is Liu as well. Hey, Wang. Wang? Wang. Wang, sorry. I'm from, I'm from the Energy Center. Uh, I'm a student studying Energy Center, London University. Uh, I'm, I'm from Energy Institute of uh, University College London. Okay, thank you. My question is in terms of the green economy, green economy in China, in terms of also new energy and carbon capture. Uh, now we're all aware that there's a lack of market stimulus and also a, a, a lacking of finance, a leverage platform. So my question is that for you, Professor Leo, um, should we actually enroll the policy first or should we wait for the technology to uh, become material first? Uh, you have asked me a very good question. Uh, as you might be aware, we have a slogan, I have a saying in China, it's called ecological, civilized um, uh, constructure. Now we raise a new saying, a new slogan called ecological and civilized construct constructural uh, mechanism. That is to say, we need to set up the policy and the mechanism first, because without the policy and the mechanism, the green GDP cannot be achieved and the technological innovation will not be useful. Okay, thank you. Uh, my question is about the demand uh, weakness in China's market. Uh, nowadays, I think the uh, most challenging issue in China's dom domestic consumption is revolve around uh, the high housing price in China. Uh, most of the families have to deal with the uh, potential risk of paying the uh, how, uh, paying of a uh, payment of the house. So, how do you comment on this regard, and how do we you know, face this challenge from the policy? perspective uh, to further accelerate the domestic uh, consumption uh, through, through the decreasing uh, housing price. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is a very sensitive uh, question indeed. Uh, yes, we all are aware that property market is extremely high. I mean the price is extremely high in China. I think the reasons are as follows. Um, the first reason I would, I would think it comes from the system for land. Um, as we're all aware, um, the, the land usage for cities and the countryside are very different. That is to say, the land in the countryside, you cannot use it as a commercial properties. 
and that's the first reason. And the second reason, I think in China we have a very unique situation. That is, three generations are buying a house. They all have this kind of wish to buy or the need to buy uh, properties. And indeed, this unique development, uh, development um, um, reason, um, together with the first reason, that actually push the property market goes up and up. Until such time, the reform um, has happened in terms of the land uh, in the countryside. That is to say, the land in the countryside can be used as a commercial properties. Then the property price might go down in China. I would say, let's say, in 10 or 15 years' time, um, when the grandpa and grandma die, and the new generation, as you know, the only child in the family will inherit many properties from the grandparents, from the parents. <laughs> then I will predict the properties in the cities will go down substantially. Thank you. Two questions upstairs, so one on my extreme left. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Professor Liu, thank you very much for this um, very comprehensive picture. Excuse me, I uh, ask my questions in English and uh, in Mandarin later. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Boy Li, I'm from Information Systems and Innovation Group here at LSE. And uh, you mentioned innovation would be the core uh, driver for further economic growth in China. And I believe most of the scholars will share the same view and the urgency. Uh, but as a management scholar, I would be more interested in uh, seeing how specifically and what actual uh, kind of change for promoting innovation industries in China. And uh, the common knowledge would be, you know, uh, yeah. uh, true innovation, true liberal, uh, good innovations come from liberal ideas where young generations do not have free, uh, a lot of restrictions. And, uh, but maybe China can developing, is developing a different model where the government is leading the innovation industry, which, you know, uh, the common wisdom would be that the state had a very taste, bad taste in innovation industries. And my question is whether Peking University, as a leading university with a historical background of innovating ideas, including uh, a wide range of scientific technology and political ideas, is changing itself to nurture a new generation of students who are uh, have their individual criticality of thinking to promote that kind of innovation that China urgently needs. And, well, there is a, another argument that I'm not sure, yeah. but I, I want your comment on that. I, would th be I, think, I think you've actually given us a very good question, so if you let us put that to Professor Liu. Thank um, you. Okay, um, just, just, Thank just, you. just one sentence. Quick. China has a major market share, yes. and a lot of people would say we will be pretty, pretty much successful in terms of uh, imitating innovations from America. We're going to have the Chinese Facebook, Chinese Twitter, Chinese everything. We're going to be more successful. <laughs> Is that a more practical way of doing that? That's my Thank question. Uh, Peking University aims at 
becoming one of the first class world-class universities. Indeed, as a university, like other universities, it is a base for faults, for innovation of faults, for growth of faults, and that's what we aim at and um, to achieve, indeed. And in terms of the second part of your question, um, if you don't mind, I don't really agree with you, because I think uh, as a developing country, uh, it's normal for those developing countries to try to copy something from the developed countries. So that is to say, it regards the, um, the current, let's say today, what is, they regard today's, uh, sorry, um, developing countries today as its own tomorrow. Um, according to this mindset, is always going to be lagged behind. It's never going to catch up with those developed countries. So therefore, uh, I think the sensible way would be for those developing countries is trying to combine its own history, its own advantage, and to develop its own developing model. Thank you. I have a long queue, and I'm not going to be able to ask all of you. So I'm going to take two more questions. Can I ask you to be brief in your questions? So the gentleman who's waited there, please Thank be you. brief, no statement. Okay, yes. Okay. Now, <laughs> the innovation and the creativity that China requires to deliver the next phase of its economic growth. Now, can you achieve that without a degree of democracy in China? Thank you. I mean, technical, you know, innovation. I didn't just mean, you know, technical, you know, innovation. What I meant is that it is very important to have innovation in terms of the system, and that also inc includes, I mean, um, you know, democracy, and uh, you know, system, um, you know, in, um, I mean, um, system. Um, you know, innovation is far more important than technical, um, you know, I mean, innovation. It is the foundation of technical, you know, innovation. We have to have both for the society to grow. We have to have both um, for the, uh, you, know, um, you know, for the society to become, um, you know, very strong. I'm um, studying management here. Um, and my question was uh, whether uh, education, obviously, as we've already uh, discussed, is a very, very important uh, basic um, foundation for innovation. And I was asking whether the um, education, especially also of migrant workers, wouldn't be a very important a part of uh, reducing the Gini coefficient in China. Now, the question you raised was very important, actually, um, because, um, um, I mean, this. Um, I mean, what we are faced now is actually the um, it's middle income trap, actually, and uh, we're also talking about is the um, in terms of you know income um, income distribution. There is actually a huge imbalance. Now, the reason we have this is because there's a lack of. Um, you know, investment in education. Um, you know, earlier on we talked about you know various countries like in I mean you know, South America and also um, in various other countries. The reason that we have you know this bubble um, 
to a certain extent is because there is a lack of you know, investment in education, in human resources. And this is, we're looking at from the you know, perspective of human you know, development history, and this is the case. Now on that, I think we have to bring this session to a close. I know there are many, many more questions we could have, we could have tabled this evening. Professor Liu has worked very, very hard for us, so I'm sure you'll enjoy, join with me in thanking him for a very interesting lecture. <laughs>